Exodus 34, and we were begin, beginning to see the nature of God more and more in the way he deals with his people. And we saw in Exodus 33 the presence of God, that God promised to be with his people in spite of their sins. There was punishment, and there's also forgiveness those who participated perhaps but not as much as others we see God's justice but his mercy also and particularly we see his great mercy on Aaron and Moses gets the assurance that God will proclaim his name and show his glory and measure to him and God describes details exactly how he's going to do it so that Moses' life is spared and uh, spared, and he's not allowed to look at God's face because nobody can look at God's face and live we come to chapter 34 where God gives the Ten Commandments and he writes them all over again because Moses had broken the first two out of anger when he came down from the mountain and saw the idolatry in the camp. Exodus 34, And the Lord said unto Moses, You two tables of stone, or cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. You see, the morning emphasized in the Bible <clears throat> We saw Abraham in Genesis. And he rose early to go to Mount Moriah. The Lord Jesus, early in the morning, while it was still dark, he went away to be alone with his Father in fellowship and prayer. And you see how God tells Moses, be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. Present yourself there to me, or to me there on the top of the mountain. God's call and his invitation continues to every person to draw near, and especially his children to come to fellowship with him, as Mary did. God is faithful. God wants to bless us. God wants to use us. He wants to prepare us. The faithful God, the covenant-keeping God, calls Moses again. And Moses does what God says. Once again, he warns, no man shall come up with you. calls Moses to come up alone. There's an encounter that he 
wants to give Moses. Moses doesn't wait for anyone to motivate him, accompany him. Initially, recall when he was called by God to go, he was reluctant and he wanted a companion. Someone, at least he didn't want to go alone. He didn't think he could do this alone. And Aaron actually became a snare to him because if there was no Aaron, perhaps there'd be no golden calf. We think that, well, they would have gotten somebody else anyway, but I can't say that for sure because he actually gave instructions. He also took some initiatives. God wants to meet with us and who's willing? Who among us are willing to go alone to meet with the living God? There's a time to come together in the community and there's another time to seek God in prayer intimately and separately. <clears throat> we often said that the extent to which we are able to fellowship with God individually one-on-one -on -one will determine the strength of our bond as a community or a church with Christ because after all the church is made up of individuals and the strength of the church as in any group normally is the strength of the weakest link it's an army, it's a unit that must go forward and we want to be the ones to help the cause of Christ, not to hinder it. Moses goes and meets with the living God and he says in verse 3, And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. No animals, no one is allowed, because it's God once more coming down to meet with Moses. It's a sanctified place. It's not a casual place now. Much like when the Lord met Moses through that burning vegetation, burning bush. First thing he said was, put off your sandals from your feet. The place where you're standing is holy, hallowed ground. Verse 4, so he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai. You see the emphasis here on early Abraham rose up early. Jesus went early to seek his father's face. There's no mistake about it. God was first in their day, in their schedule, on their schedule, to meet with the living God. And how wonderful it is to come to God the way he wants us to come to him and not the way we'd like to come to him. He rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai. You don't see Moses saying, I'm not a morning person, Lord. Or Abraham saying, I'm not a morning person, Lord. Or the Lord Jesus saying, I'm not a morning person, Father. Since I took on this flesh, 
the desire gets awakened by the Lord and barring any emergencies and special situations. There's no reason why we can't seek him early except ourselves. And he took in his hand the latter parts of verse part of verse four in Exodus thirty four. The two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. This is why it was hallowed, the entire place. And no one was allowed to come near that mountain. And the Lord descended. Now the Lord descended in the cloud. You picture that? A, a cloud on top of the mountain, God himself coming from heaven in that cloud. How awesome. And stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. That's what he said he would do. Moses wanted to see his glory. The proclamation had the revelation of his glory and his power. It was not simply a a rehearsal of some names of God or an explanation as the revelation of his glory, his power. Because his wonderful acts are tied to his name. He is the word. He is the revelation. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Again, we see God as a holy God, a just and truthful God, God of truth, but also merciful, compassionate and forgiving. He says, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy, not wrath, mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, how good God is. And yet, it is by no means clearing the guilty and letting a generational curse come upon people blatantly, ruthlessly, reject his mercy and are impudent, arrogant, and continue stubbornly to defy God and do things that don't please Him. What will He do with those people? They reject His mercy. He wants to show mercy, but they reject it. And when generations reject God, generational curse stays and gets stronger. There's a mutation in the spiritual genetic code because of sin 
that mutation gets strengthened, the expression of evil becomes dominant in the spiritual genetics until that generational curse is broken, the DNA is reverted or cleaned up by the Creator. No man can do it. The person comes out of a family that's full of curses. No matter how much money they have or how much clout they have in society or with, or with the people of power, people, a person, a family, a generation, without the Lord Jesus Christ leading them, as the children of Israel were led by the pillar of cloud by day and the fire and the cloud by night, No matter what they seem to have, whether it's money, real estate, people power, they're aimlessly wandering in the wilderness until they die out. That too, a wilderness with scorpions and serpents and all kinds of evil. Because they refuse Jesus, who is the person who can give light and life liberty those generations are cursed until someone comes along and hears the truth says no 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 I'm not going the way of my forefathers or my family who are presently with me I'm going to seek God like Abram and the entire generation changes is the potential how wonderful to stand up for truth and righteousness and follow the living God so Moses made haste when he saw God come and proclaim his character and who he is. He made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. What else could we do? The presence of almighty God hearing his voice. The revelation of his glory. Like John in Revelation chapter 1. Or in the book of Daniel, the prophet's the apostles just falling helpless in the presence of God because of his glory. Moses here was shown a measure of glory that didn't cause him to feel lifeless, but nonetheless, he fell to his face. <clears throat> then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, Go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people. Now, previously, you see Moses saying in verse 12 of Exodus 33, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, Moses said to the Lord, but you haven't let me know by whom you will send me or whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found grace or favor in my sight. Moses said, you said all these things to me, Lord. Now, therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way. I want to know more perfectly, Lord. I need help, Lord. I need your direction, Lord. I need to know how... You're going to do this. Who 
can go with me, Lord. I need some guidance. I need help. And I want to continue in that favor. Remember this, your people. The Lord says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He says previously in the same chapter, his angel, the son is angel. He says his presence here. Moses says in verse 15 of Exodus 33, How will I and your people know that we have your favor unless you are with us, Lord, and go with us? Then will be this peculiar or separate treasure to you from all the people on the earth. Now, similar to a recent event in Moses' life, it's after he has a greater encounter with God and sees his just nature and what he's saying that the information that Moses gives to God seems to alter. What do we mean by that? On the mountain, when the Lord was giving the commandments, the law, he said, you need to get down there. These people have corrupted themselves quickly. Moses doesn't seem to acknowledge the grievous sin that they've been committing until he goes down. God is perfect in his revelation. Now, God had been saying here in Exodus 33 that these people are stiff-necked, but you don't see Moses using that language. Somehow, there's a disconnect with the severity of the sins of the people that is causing God to withdraw because he's holy. Moses, as we said yesterday, he's learning. He's learning. There's a growth that's happening. Now that the Lord proclaims his name, he gets nearer. Moses says the right thing. We're a stiff-necked people. Please forgive us and take us as your inheritance. You see how that honest confession must be there? Thorough honest confession. There are people who say, I love you, Lord. I Please forgive me. I know I sinned against God. God, I went away from you. They may even cry. But you know what? The depth in their hearts is nowhere near the depth of seeking forgiveness and gratefulness and repentance that such an one as Mary had who came before the Lord publicly to express the thankfulness in her unworthiness by tears publicly and pouring that expensive perfume on the head of the Lord Jesus and wiping his feet with her tears. Do we have such a thing? Tears that are not crocodile tears? Not emotionalism, emotionalism, but a genuine contrition. This is wrong. I'm so wicked and so wrong for doing this against my God. I'm not going to be ready to just pat myself on the back. Well, you made your confession, so pick up and go. It has to be a thorough confession. Then we can get that thorough forgiveness and then we can get up and go forward with God. We have to acknowledge our sins thoroughly before God. Only then will God take it seriously. Too much half-hearted confession. God had to tell Israel, stop coming to me. He had to intervene and tell his prophets such as Jeremiah, don't even pray for them. They are so evil and stubborn and continually lie through their teeth right in front of my altar, my God. 
God gives us a picture to check ourselves this morning, going forward, to continue to keep ourselves honest before the Lord, to keep right, because you know why? Because God is a God of truth. He loves righteousness. He's a righteous God. And if we come in an unrighteous way, meaning hypocritical way, then we will miss his blessing and he will actually distance himself from us. Maybe, like Samson, we won't even know until we get into some kind of big problem. Better to be very humble and gentle, meek, childlike before the Lord and make sure we get that first straightened out. More than how our hair is going to be for today or what appointments we have, we need to make sure your heart, my heart is right before God because that's the only thing that really matters before God. Everything else is like sprinkles on an ice cream cone full of cyanide poison. It may taste good, look good, feel good, end up dying. Moses said it right, right here. He said, we're stiff-necked people. Well, there are those who say, well, we agree with you, Pastor, and and that's why we keep confessing and confessing and confessing and we beat ourselves up and we can't lift our head up and we can't really believe God for anything. We just are so bad. I mean, we're just trying to make it. Hopefully we can float to the top somehow by a miracle. That's defeatism, false humility, and a whole lie before God. The Lord says in Romans ten nine eight, if you confess your sins or confess the Lord Jesus meaning we acknowledge he's our savior we need to be saved from our sins then you also believe in your heart God raised him from the dead you really wholeheartedly make that the priority of your life the gospel I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified that's our passion every day wherever we go as missionaries on the job, in the marketplace, amongst our family, or even strangers. I'm a Christian. That's my identity. Because of the Savior who died for me. Oh, I can't ever get over the greatness of his love for me. I can't ever stop thanking him. And every day I'm happy because of Jesus who died for me. He's forgiven me. And I'm going to keep a clean account before him. By being honest before him every day. God hears this and he follows through with his plan and he renews that covenant. Verse 10. Someone like to read from Exodus thirty four ten and let's read down to verse sixteen. Praise the Lord, Pastor. Praise the Lord, and this new King James Version. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. 
Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Amen. God calls his name. He says, my name is Jealous. My name is Jealous. For the Lord is a jealous God. He said this back in Exodus 20, in verse 5. He says, you shall not bow down yourself, nor serve them. What is he talking about? He's talking about any graven images, any idols. He calls them other gods and strange gods. And God explains the sequence of how his people may fall away from him. And often we look at the Old Testament and we refer to the New Testament as the New Testament reveals things that are actually hidden and not forthrightly explained in the Old Testament. God wants people who really seek him to find those treasures. In the New Testament we see how demonic activity is involved when people are called to lunch. They're called to dinner. How many Christians just go because it's, after all, just food and fellowship and we can iron out our differences? It's not always that simplistic. Simple. We can get ourselves in an atmosphere where we can yield to someone's demands because of the context, the atmosphere. As I was meditating on this yesterday, how many people make deals over lunch? How many executives they meet? Come on, let's go to lunch. This is their way of brokering something or cutting a deal. It's an opportunity for persuasion over pizza. There's a dynamic there. When people get together in a neutral, quote-unquote, amiable atmosphere, and in the course of eating and enjoying the food and enjoying the company, and uh, by and by letting the guard down, we can actually yield to things. After all, we made it, didn't we? We're in the house. We're with them outside. And we're getting this familiarity with them. And the enemy can buy us. And of course, it's much more than just food. The point here is that the Lord said, you need to know the source of the invitation. It's not a mere human being always that wants to just spend some time with you in a healthy fellowship and uh, relaxing time. 
God says, no, who's calling you? Even among your own family, if they're serving idols, that contact can have an effect on you. Now, how do we get out of such a thing? Someone says, well, Pastor, you don't expect me to just flatly say no. Sometimes it may come to that, but much of the time you see the Lord Jesus he gives us wisdom and we can employ tact. God will show us when there's a willing heart, God will make a way. How to avoid certain things tactfully. What he says here is, and I will make a covenant before all the people I will do wonders. He's already done tremendous miracles. They witnessed the plagues as well as the passage through the Red Sea. But he says, I'm going to do a lot more. How good God is. He has highlighted their sins with this calf worship, this idol worship, the golden calf. What it cost them. And that yet he's willing to work with the people, the people that are remaining. That's why it's important to always note that presumptuous sin is a dangerous thing because the population may have been maybe 2 million, 2.5 million. We don't know exactly at this point. But there are less, some 20 plus thousand people. Now they're gone. So the good thing God is saying here, it seems to be a restoration that God wants to still work with them. He still listens to his servant because he loves Moses. And he says, I'll go with you. But some 23,000 at least people are not there. They're gone. We need to be careful how we walk with God because usually the people who are hardened, they've hardened their hearts like Pharaoh. They're, they can come to a state where they don't even know that they're literally on the brink of falling into hell because of that presumptuous sin and feeling that, you know, we can do it still. We're still here. Everybody's here. No, because someone's alive physically or they seem to be okay, doing okay, doesn't mean that wrath is not hanging over their head because the Bible says the whole world, the whole world, in the Apostle John's writing, in the epistles of John, he says the whole world lies in the grip of the evil one. They're in the grip of the evil one. Anytime he can drag them to hell, but for the grace of God, there's a window of opportunity and yet God is working with these people who are there. He says, it's an awesome thing that I will do with you. God is still eager to show his mercy and his love. Verse 11, he says, listen carefully, observe what I commanded this day. Observation in Joshua chapter 1. He says, meditate on the word that you may observe to do all that I commanded. Observe. Get yourself to think upon God's word and to do what he says. It's an activity and a motivation and a meditation that's required to take this seriously. When we go into a government building, it may be a court, it may be DMV. 
You go there, you've got to abide by the rules, you've got to get that ticket, you may have to speak with a security guard or another agent there who receives you before they direct you to the right place. You've got to get that ticket, you've got to keep quiet. You have to wait your turn. There's so many things that people observe because they don't want to face the consequences. First of all, they don't want to miss out on what they came there for. They don't want to be embarrassed or locked up. Something turned out very wrong for them. Careful to observe certain things. A person who's been getting tickets for speeding and is in danger of losing everything or going DWI, whatever they do, you see there's a carefulness. A one who didn't care if they wore a seatbelt or not, felt like Superman. Who cares? I've done all kinds of speeds with no seatbelt. It's a sissy type of thing, and nobody can stop me. Look at me. I've been doing this for years until something happens, and the law gets on their back, and things start getting confiscated from them. All of a sudden, they begin to observe. This is life and death eternally. He says, observe what I've commanded you, what I command you this day. Behold, this is my plan. I'm driving out before you, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now, take heed to yourselves. Be careful. One thing you mustn't do is make a league with the people you see. Don't get curiously led away and think, wow, isn't that wonderful? Look at the Canaanite culture. Look at those colorful... Look at that parade they have every year. I just get so blessed by seeing people of all ages parading. I know they don't believe what I believe, but this is community. We've got to show up. We have to be a participant. I have to be a good neighbor. God warns them strictly. Don't make a covenant with them. Because it will turn out to be a trap for you and your family. But what you need to do is this, these asherith or asherith poles, this cult of fertility that they had, these false gods, demons really, next to the altar of Baal, all other gods, Moloch and whatever they had. He said, you see that I'm telling you to take over because I'm giving you the land. But your part is to not only make no league, look at step two. Some people say, oh, no, no, God, I, I try to avoid these people. and You know, when they give me something, hey, here's a great book to read. How many Christians, how many Christians, maybe you can trace your past. I certainly can, mine, many years ago. But that that awkwardness that I don't want to say no. I don't want to hurt their feelings. I know I'll just take it and put it in my car and throw it away later. No. If it has nothing to do with Christ, if it's something demonic, you refuse it right there on the spot. And in fact, as I mentioned, some years ago on the job, right there in the heart of the city in Times Square, I believe it was a time of a snowstorm and we were deployed in different places and I happened to go into a, a room, a common lunch room rather large lunch room for different departments 
and I just happened to go there to heat up my lunch in a microwave, and there was a pornographic magazine right there. And years ago, I might have thought, well, I have nothing to do with it, and it doesn't belong to me. I'm not going to touch it. But there was an anger, there's a hatred that that was planted there. First of all, it's against the company policies, public place to bring, bring that. But secondly, I'm in that room. Even though no one's there, I took and I ripped it up into pieces and put it in the trash. And then I left the room. Just a small example of the anger we should have and the willingness to be able to stand up and justify your action, even if people don't want to hear it, to have that boldness to say, you don't bring that stuff here. That's offensive to me. That's against company policy. We need to be bold. If Moses was not bold, he would have become like Aaron joined in with the crowd that's something that can happen to any believer certain times we're supposed to become militant yes not hurting people but we may have to hurt their feelings so we don't hurt God's feelings and get ourselves into a snare may the Lord help you to apply what God is speaking he said but you shall destroy their altars break their sacred pillars we don't go around vandalizing everything we see outside but you see this was a place that God was giving them. And so our territory, there's so much we can do. The question is, are we doing everything God wants us to do the way he wants us to do it to keep ourselves safe? Or is there a measure of compromise here and there because we want to be good, nice Christians? The Lord Jesus didn't fit that description when he went to the temple and cleaned house. He became angry with the anger of God. And he made a whip of cords and he cast the people out and overthrew their tables. And the support he leaned on was the word, the word quoting the word, Jesus quoting the word, the zeal for your house has eaten me up. It's consumed me. The anger that we need to have against sin and against compromise, against the devil coming through various ways. He'll try many different ways. If we won't listen when he comes and bangs hard on the door and practically kicks down the door, we're not intimidated. you come through some nice person who seems to be helpful and there are some things at stake, you see. Uh, this is the key person here. If I get good with them, they can give me this benefit or that benefit. That's the test of our hearts. Our hearts. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. In society, in this culture, we're called to stand up for the truth. But we can't build the kingdom of God, as it says in Jeremiah 1, until we first tear down the false altars. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. How many times have we ever heard this quoted? 
many Christians don't even know it's there. How important for us to read line upon line, precept upon precept, the entire word of God to know God really, really well. So we have nothing to fear because it's written in the Proverbs, the righteous are as bold as a lion. But the wicked keeps running when no man's pursuing. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. There's a time when we have to speak up. There's a time. We don't do things prematurely, but we learn to depend upon God. And when God says go, that's when we speak. Certain times, even to people near us, and say, I don't not only not agree with this, this is wrong. You see, it's not a question of my opinion. This is wrong before who? Before God. But I don't believe... It's the truth. Whether you want the truth or not is up to you, but I'm with the truth. And I'm not going to ensnare myself, jeopardize my safety, my spiritual well-being, or the people who are with me. I'd rather offend man than God. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles, and Peter leading them, said, Now you judge. You have a law. You're the people in charge here. He spoke boldly. The man who was afraid and said, I don't know the man, referring to the Lord Jesus, denied him thrice. He said very boldly, you have your law. You're threatening to beat us. You're threatening to do this and that and the other thing and tell us to stop proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You go ahead and judge whether it's right to listen to you or listen to God. We need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. And he'll give us exactly the words to stop the mouths, as Paul said to Timothy, of the people who are gainsayers. It's a glorious thing to be able to not disown God in front of man, but to say, my God is a jealous God. And I have to do what he says. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot. God considers this prostitution. When a person goes to a pseudo-Christian church with images, rituals, smoke, lights, action. And he's not only not there, but demons are there impersonating the servants of God in Christianity. God says, that's prostitution. That's denial of your relationship with me. You're disowning me. You can't be in two places at one time. In your lifetime, that is. You have to make a choice. Who's your master? And notice how Relationships get formed. No wonder parents who are wise screen the friends of the children. So long as the children are under the roof, no matter what age, there's a responsibility. And the screening process is not done by our own wisdom, but by God's truth. How many people, how many people we know who have family prayer, they go to church regularly, 
not enough church, but we've observed over the years, all cultures, whether Spanish or Indian or Chinese or American, Italian, Irish, you name it, people who really have been born again, they really love God, they really want to do the right thing, but the wisdom is lacking because they can't see ahead that a sleepover is not right in the context of this fellowship my children are having with these kids who seem to be good and the parents seem to be good, but they really don't understand anything about holiness. And who knows what that child will be exposed to at night or in the evening with the media, with the books, with the journals. There's a plethora, a multitude of avenues that the enemy is just waiting. You know when? When you go for lunch. When you go for a sleepover. When you allow your children that latitude. And I trust my child. It's not a question about you trusting your child primarily. There's a question of whether you trust God when he says be careful. And you do everything you're supposed to do to protect your child. Because the Bible says, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good morals. God explains the sequence here so beautifully, very succinctly. He said, listen, the people, you need to know the source, what they're connected to. Yeah, even lukewarm Christians, be careful. Sometimes they can be the greatest source of harm to your family. Not that we despise them. But there are certain times when we need to understand that that can affect us. Yes. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the prostitute with their gods. You know what? Start making a sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you, not just for lunch now, to eat of the sacrifice. Partake of their behavior. You see how it started out? There's a meeting. There's a league. There's a covenant. Let's spend some time together. Get to know each other. And all of a sudden, they're doing what those people are doing. Mannerisms change. And uh, that gate that was straight and narrow, all of a sudden, starts opening up. There's room for more and more and more. We've seen that. Disney, how much evil something as innocent seemingly as Disney can do to Christian morals? How? You have a fully clothed Mickey Mouse over there. It's pretty funny. There seems to be nothing wrong with him. Then you introduce Minnie Mouse, his girlfriend, just a cartoon. But you see how the child that otherwise is not even considering that uh, may begin to think about, you know what? There's a relationship going on there. And look, there's a kiss. And look, there's a hug. And there's a squeeze. And there's a red face embarrassment. And his dynamics are all shot at lightning speed into that canvas of that unassuming child. And then... It, you see a mermaid, which is strictly from idolatrous religion, but 
she's drawn in a cute way and beautiful music, orchestral. And, and so now the child gets to see that you can dress like that and be seen in public, even on the screen. And you know what? I'd like to get that doll. Oh, isn't that the one we saw in the movie? Characters, these little idols are formed. And the children's affinity, they begin to be attracted and they get more into that. And morals, meanwhile, that are being perhaps set up and inculcated by otherwise Christian parents, by and by are being eroded. They begin to make sacrifice. They begin to fantasize and draw these pictures and get involved. And as long as it's not the bloody, gory stuff, it's just Disney. That's how the devil comes. Most of the time, it's harmless. Oh, look at this. We got free tickets to where? This uh, fun amusement place. Oh, I love to go there. How many of us can testify? Things are very different with us. I know there was a season many, many years ago that a circus was a circus to me. A great adventure was great adventure. Um, Disney was Disney. It's, doesn't phase me. But there are a lot of things happening beneath the surface that the enemy is trying to put on us. And if we don't immediately embrace it, it's a lessening of that resolve to keep well protected and safeguarded, spiritually speaking. And then the Spirit of God begins to come and reveal to us how these things are actually set up from the devil. I don't say all of Disney, but it's public knowledge that what they stand for are values that are not inconsistent with Christianity at all. In fact, we see that in much of the world today, not only in entertainment. We're called to be judicious and prudent for the purpose of cleaving to our God who's jealous. We're able to understand that in the context of marriage. And the husband comes and says to the wife, I don't want you going to lunch with these men in your job, on your job. And continually going to them. And the conversation is supposed to be over some deal or over this and that and all kinds of conversations. It's not healthy. Then the phone calls that are coming after that, oh, it's just business, but it doesn't settle well with me. But wife would say, you know what, you're being overprotective and you're really interfering with my business. And She's forgotten that she's the wife and he has the right to exclusively have her to himself, including her emotional fidelity. God says, I'm a jealous God. I don't want you playing with demons. We've outlined how they can come. And the way the Lord explains it is, it'll eventually go into a full-blown alliance. We see it tragically in the book of Judges. We saw a quick playing out of this in Exodus 32. 
And then a full-blown idolatry by marriage, as the people got very accustomed and comfortable with the Canaanites, and the people of God went even further to the point of eating their children physically. How did that ever come to be? Unthinkable. That's what this demonic intrusion will do to any believer who says, ah, you're being too religious and, you know, you're trying to be something you're not. We can never be perfect or holy in this life. This is nothing. We actually had a, when we visited a family in Florida some years ago, actually it was California, California, and we saw the disintegration of this Christian family. And you know what the conversation brought up? This particular head of the family was trying to tell us that you are depriving your children of something wonderful, and that's Disney. And how you really need to take your children to the movies and really need to do this and that, along with hiking and other things. Just lump it all together, apples and oranges. He said, no. <laughs> There's things in there that are not from God. The person was adamant and became angry. Now, several years later, we see the degeneration of that person's own faith. Everything is open now. Everything. And the children are getting more and more out of the control of the parents in a bad way. Pesker actually warned that family back then some years ago. Watch what will happen in a few years if you're going to be unwise in your decisions. It was not just this Disney. It was other things such as, as we mentioned, sleepovers and going over and having parties and this and that. Little children. And we told them, this is how it starts and this is where you'll have a problem down the line. They despise that and now they're suffering for it. God gives us his word and we're called not just to say, you know, historically, this exegesis, we look into the original context. It must be an eisegesis. There must be this hermeneutics. What is that? Understanding how it applies to me today in my situation. Get that wisdom. Don't fall for this. God says, you, your people will play the harlot with their gods. They'll begin to sacrifice to their gods. And then you'll begin to eat their sacrifices. And you'll start having this intermarriage with people who are following devils. Sons and your daughters. Your sons and their daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons, notice, make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Marriage is a powerful, powerful force. Number one, we have to make sure that our children marry godly people, truly godly people. It's our responsibility to pray to God. Don't settle for anything less than that. It's not a question of the best verse, the Versus the not so best is the question of life and death many times, spiritually and maybe physically. That's how far a married partner can take the other person. And he said, their daughters can end up making your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. Self-explanatory. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. There were three feasts that the children of Israel were commanded 
later on we'll see in more detail Leviticus and the following books it was the feast of unleavened bread during the time of Passover the feast of weeks or Shavuot Pentecost and then the feast of tabernacles booths Sukkot or the ingathering there's a harvest the feasts were connected to the harvest connected to the barley grain primarily but also to the wheat harvest and the fruit harvest the grapes and these people were commanded that you worship the Lord your God and this holy convocation he says seven days you shall eat unleavened bread in other words in contrast to what we just heard these pagans they have their festivals and they have their things that they do you don't partake in that rather I have a program for you you follow this we're not called to be in a vacuum there are too many Christians who say well there's no fun anymore if I can't drink if I can't smoke if I can't socialize in that way if I can't watch this and watch that I feel isolated and I feel alone that's a self-created self-imposed vacuum God has a whole lot of things that's has said this often before that is the Christian is a very busy person there's no time for any folly we're full of joy doing but we glorify God I recall a brother he may be on this morning but you can never forget and I often use an example the people who we may witness to our disciples I say how this brother was watching his comedies during lunch and as he was getting closer to God he said you know there's nothing good to watch is this wrong for me to watch it and just mention to him does it make you any purer by the time you finish with what you're watching oh it's not very bad or anything just some light comedy and uh, the reply was that there are really no other alternatives online that's all there is what will I do if I can't do this while I eat it's become a habit and I enjoy it and the answer to that reply was sometimes God will allow you to get into the desert away from what you're used to so he can give you the best it was in the desert that they had angels food and a short time later this brother said I have found so many good things that I never knew existed sermons and Christian programming and he felt full just a short time before that he felt like there's nothing else it's exactly the feeling the devil will give we're called to be separate and do things that will benefit our souls and have intimate fellowship with God and grow in him well the feast of unleavened bread was the first thing during the time of Passover that the Lord says seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib from the month of Abib you came out of Egypt this is a Jewish calendar that the Lord set up and now the dedication of the firstborn males all that opened the womb are mine and every male firstborn among your livestock whether ox or sheep 
But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All of the firstborn, all the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. In other words, don't sacrifice them all. But you can use a substitute. And the idea is, they're the first. Like the first fruits. They belong to me. And that sets the tone for the rest of the children. Should God give you more children, more flocks, and everything you have. Your first paycheck, your first part of your paycheck, your first portion of your day, everything. It's like the Sabbath, and it's like our Sunday. The first part. In the terms of Sabbath, it was the last or the latter part of the week, but nonetheless, it was a consecration of one day. We have more significance because it is the first fruits during which festival or feast the Lord Jesus rose on the third day. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And we have Sunday as the first day to give our all to the Lord. That sets the tone for the week. It should. And the idea here is that this belongs to me. And uh, because it belongs to me, it's sanctified and sacred. You can't use it for anything else. In the case of the donkey, we see that. You should break his neck if you want to redeem him. It's mine, not yours. Look at the level of dedication. Hannah brought Samuel to the tabernacle, which was called at that time in Shiloh, the temple. Although it was not really the temple, it was the makeshift temple, portable temple, if you will. It was a tabernacle still because Solomon had not built the temple yet. It came many years later. But when she promised to the Lord, the child is yours, I will give him to you, Lord, for your service. She came and she made good on that. It shows that consecration, you see. If we can only grasp that in our lives, that everything belongs to God, yes, but there are also periods in which God asks me to dedicate certain things, and what a blessing it will be when I understand the operations of God and how He waits for people to press in and to do above and beyond Similar to the offerings for the tabernacle. He didn't force them. He didn't impose upon them that you have to bring it. But he said, whoever is willing, what a blessing it would have been for the people who came to build the tabernacle out of their own substance. What a, not only a joy that I have a part in this, but God never, ever shortchanges us, number one. Number two, we can never, ever outgive him. He always gives us much more. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. There are those who grumble and they are struggling to tithe and struggling to give an offering, struggling to be generous with other people. Is this miserliness in the Christian Scrooge like identity? It's a dire contradiction to all that Christ is. But they harbor it, and they're able to have the latitude to do that because we can always switch between the Spirit and the flesh if we want. Or we can just be all with the Spirit. But there's another group of people who they can see not only the joy of giving, but there's that 
clear understanding that this is in the name of my God. And I know he'll bless me because that's how he is. It's not the primary motivation, but it's there, it's included. And God says so many, many times. If you do this, I'll do this for you. He's supposed to do it out of love, but he says, I love you so much, I'm going to do more for you. Hallelujah. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. The Sabbath was always a priority for the Lord. No matter whether they were building the tabernacle or they were coming out to inherit the land, he kept reiterating, re-emphasizing, do not neglect the Sabbath. In fact, that's what got them into trouble later on as part of the idolatry and departing from God, whose name is Jealous. The time of Nehemiah, Nehemiah had to get very, very strict with the people and begin to threaten them. He literally went and pulled the beards of some people who intermarried with the people who were idolatrous. And he found people, he caught people doing business on the Sabbath and he told them sternly, you better not do this. You're going to get punished. Then he found people lining up, waiting outside to do business. They're trying all kinds of things, but the Spirit of God, the zeal for the Lord, like the Lord Jesus who came into the temple to cleanse it, was consuming Nehemiah too. And so with you, and so with me. To know the heart of God as we read the Word of God. Why the feasts? Why the Sabbath? Why the redemption of the firstborn? Why the prohibition to make a league? Go out to dinner with these people careful six days you should work but on the seventh day and we read the other day the Sabbath was not just an institution God set up to commemorate his rest on the seventh day during creation but he said very clearly this is a sign between me and you this actually serves as a ID card for you because you out of all the people on the earth have this Sabbath that I've given you we outlined the other day how we are actually in the Sabbath rest, the eternal Sabbath rest of the Lord of Sabbath when we get born again. We observe it how? By ceasing from our own works, denying the flesh, kicking out the old behaviors with the power of God, putting them to death and being brand new every day, not just one day out of seven. And next he says the Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, 50 days after the first fruits. And you shall observe, which is part of that Passover celebration, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the first fruits. And you shall observe the Feast of Weeks, let's back up one verse actually, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, in plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Let no one think, well, business is booming on Sunday. God understands. No, no, no. We understand what God is saying here. We must do everything in our power to free up that day exclusively for the Lord. Seek God. That principle remains for the believer. Set it one day at least to concentrate even more on the things of God. 
And you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. You had barley and you had the wheat. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Look at the promise. Look at the blessing. It's not a simply a list of Negative things, don't do that, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. Don't talk to him. The devil can just come and make that a legalistic type of thing. But God says these things because he wants to protect us. And he's got a blessing waiting for us. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. God will give us more territory, hallelujah, spiritually if we don't compromise. Hallelujah. We don't have to struggle in ministry unnecessarily because the Lord said if you abide in me if you tabernacle with me and don't go tabernacling with other people and other gods then you will produce much fruit for I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year you see the built in insurance over here protection and security God says, when you have to leave where you are to come to Jerusalem three times a year, later on it'll become Jerusalem. But right now he says, wherever they're supposed to come. He says, your land will be protected. No one will, will be able to cast an eye upon your property that you're going to, first of all, because I'm taking it away from them and giving it to you. I will protect your borders. And when you come to appear before me, everything will be safe. Don't fear. When we have to do the will of God, we've got to tell ourselves, I'm doing what God is saying, and God will take care of the rest. Hallelujah. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And certainly, God will protect what he gives us. Faith. Faith. The exercise of faith. Not excuses. Not a worldly mentality. But what about this? No, God said to do this and that's all there is to it. With joy because we know God is a good father. And even what seems to be an apparent loss or trouble while we're doing the will of God, you can know it's from the devil trying to discourage us and distract us. We'll say, well, God knows what he's doing and he'll take care of this too. But I'm going to keep doing the will of God. Hallelujah. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven. Leaven stands for evil, as we know, malice in the New Testament. He says, don't have that kind of leaven. But also in Leviticus, we see that certain things, such as the two loaves of bread, the wave offerings, they had leaven. And so the parable that the Lord told about the woman who hid leaven in the three measures of meal... Many, many commentators, many Christians have been misled, misguided into thinking, well, that must be the world and the corruption that's in the church. No, no. It's very clear. The Lord said, this is how the kingdom of God is. Just like the mustard seed that grows up to be a huge tree. The power of the gospel is all pervasive and extremely potent. It cannot be stopped. Hallelujah. 
we need to read the whole Bible, not just rush to commentaries and preachers who really don't have the Spirit of God teaching them. They circulate things that they've been handed down by men who don't have the Spirit of God really teaching them, and then it becomes a common teaching and everybody says the same thing. Leaven is not always bad in the Bible. But the use of leaven here is prohibited. Back to the historical context is they didn't have time for the bread to rise and they had to make haste when they left Egypt. It was a commemoration also that every time they excluded the leaven, it was a memorial. This is the God. This is the God that we're doing this unto. Oh, it might have been centuries that the Exodus happened, but that's the same God because they did the same thing. No leaven. They ate this matzah bread, flat bread. It didn't rise. No leaven. God told them. And we see the significance. They had to clean out the house of any leaven. Nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. All these stipulations, they just had to follow them. One of the things that are that is very problematic today in Christianity is it's a free-for-all. Even a few commandments are difficult for a lot of Christians. Immediately they jump on that bandwagon hitched up by the devil that not under the law. What's wrong with taking in a movie on Sunday in the secular theaters? What's wrong with going and playing, playing softball at the church and relaxing? Well, depends on the individual. If we really want to follow God and dedicate the day to God, can we do that on six other days of the week? Can we just think about the Lord? Can we just rest and get closer to the Lord? After all, we go to church on that day. Why not dedicate that day to seeking God and make that a law of love? for our family and see how you prosper. I can never forget, though my parents didn't know much about the Bible, they knew that they had to fear the Lord and love the Lord and they had to train us to do the same. And part of that was, nobody told them, in fact, it was very counterculture to the American society that we came to in the late 70s. But God put it in their hearts that Sunday is the day that you're going to dedicate to God. All you little ones, my brothers, my brother, my sisters, myself. That's the day that you don't go outside and play and do what you want. But it's the day that you think about God. You go to church, you come back, you sing some hymns with the family, you read the word on your own, uh, you watch uh, Christian programming, sermons. It's a beautiful time. The day was filled with things of God. And I can never forget how God so faithfully prospered us tremendously. That's not what we were looking for, my parents. But I can very clearly remember that out of all the people in the community where we lived, in New York City, 
that my dad got a promotion, and my mom got a job in the Empire State Building with my dad, and we prospered so much that I remember I wanted a baseball bat, and I got a baseball bat at that time that was signed by, it wasn't the original signature, but it was a, it was a valuable thing, by a, a person who become legendary. And I got that. And when the teacher in third grade said, it's a brand new children's dictionary, and I just love those things. It's a big Victoria dictionary. And she said, it just came out. And try to get this. Ask your mom and dad. I made a phone call after class, and I had it the next day in school. I remember without even trying, God helped all of us to skip a grade in junior high. I've seen God honor His Word and His covenant when we do His will in so many ways. We have things, stipulations in the New Covenant. And because they're spiritually discerned, it's not simply a matter of God saying, do this and do that. But God leads us to make decisions and judgments because we're being led by the Holy Spirit. And it can be very countercultural counterintuitive, not only in the light of the world, it'll always be that way, but in light of the lukewarm Laodicean Christian culture that we live in in these last days. The first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. What a tremendous uh, feeling to come to God first, first, first. Bring the best to Him. And then he ends with this in this section. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You think that's a curious thing to say at the end of all of this? There's certain things you don't do. It just goes against basic human decency. Certainly against God's nature. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What's the purpose of the milk? Then the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. It's not just a blanket statement, blank check. It's not just I'm making a covenant with you and now you'll be my people. No, there are laws, there are terms. And we have terms today as believers, as we come to the conclusion here of this chapter. We are called to be separate, like Jesus, from sinners. Their ways. And God will begin to refine us more and more. You know what? The doors will close to a lot of avenues the devil had access into your family. And even though it will come with persecution, all they that are godly in Christ Jesus, Jesus shall suffer persecution. You will become stronger and more mature spiritually. And you'll be protecting your family all the more. And God can use you to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. A light on a lampstand that gives light to all who are in the room. You can't mix with the darkness and expect to be light. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is what it is. Basically, paraphrasing verse 27, the terms over here, and this is the basis on which I've made the covenant with you. So he was there with the Lord, supernaturally, 40 days and 40 nights, without eating or drinking. 
some of you may know, maybe many of you, maybe all of you. The human being can go without water on average for only up to three days. Moses did not drink water for 40 days. Being in the presence of Almighty God, it doesn't mean now this is an example first that if we just shut ourselves in a room and keep praying and praying and praying, we can do the same thing. No. He was called by God to meet with God for a purpose. And you know what? God was speaking and he's not going to die when God's speaking to him. It wasn't a presumptuous thing he did. But it shows us the power of God. Man shall not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he wrote, who wrote? God wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. How great God is. He didn't say, Moses, I didn't tell you to throw those tablets down as you got angry. How dare you do that? I'm not writing anymore. I'm not giving anymore. It really shows the tenderness of the Lord. He understands. He loves us. He'll do everything He can to make sure we're blessed. Now the effect, as we mentioned yesterday, on Moses' skin and his skin cells from the glory of God. The heavenly glory transferred to this earthly tabernacle of Moses' body itself. Now it was so, verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, I'll give the opportunity for someone else to read, actually. This powerful section here. Exodus 34, verses 29 to the end of the chapter, verse 35. Exodus 34, verse 29 through verse 35, NKJV version. Now it was so, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whatever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Praise God. Praise the Lord. 
the New Testament alludes to this in speaking of Paul the Apostle says that we no longer have a veil. Open face beholding the glory of the Lord. No longer veil. Moses took that veil off when he went to speak with the Lord. We had that privilege of intimate communion with the Lord if we want it so that we can see more and more of the glory of God and a transfer happens where God's glory will rest upon us our demeanor our speech the authority that we have given from God because we're faithfully in his presence things will change as we mentioned about the apothecary we mentioned about the anointing oil and the incense a few chapters before. How the compound included aromatic resins and how the fragrance was there when the priest got anointed, when the incense altar had the incense placed on it and offered to God. We mentioned about the parallel to the fragrance of Christ that we have. And yet that beautiful fragrance can become a smell of death, the Apostle says in the New Testament, to those who are blind. They're not receiving it. They're wicked. It becomes a judgment. But God's heart is to save. But if the grace is rejected, the only thing left is condemnation. Because they have not believed on the only Son of God, as it says in the Gospel of John. Here that veil is off when we're communing with the Lord and it's off when we're communing with fellow believers who are intimately communing with the Lord too. It's a beautiful presence of the Lord when the people are truly separated, consecrated before the Lord. Only in those fellowships. Otherwise, you may have a person who's intimately communing with the Lord and a veil comes up when they're fellowshipping with lukewarm people because there's no connection there. It's not really even fellowship. It's either a person who has been quickened by God's Spirit and he says, get out of that idolatrous place. Or a person who's disobedient, who's come to the truth, but they fear people and they love people more than God and they hang around until more trouble comes their way and then they lose that glory. And guess what? They also have a mask on, spiritually speaking. But here, his skin radiated part of that glory of God. And it caused fear in even the high priest, his own brother, his older brother. And Moses had to call them, and then they came and talked to them. There's a clear communication here from the Spirit of God that you cannot, you absolutely cannot, even greater than the law of gravity, which can be defied actually, there's something that is unchanging 
impossible. What is that? It's impossible for a person to spend quality time with God and not have his favor go with them everywhere they go. That's number one. God himself stepping in and showing, as he often did with Moses and even Aaron later on and others, I'm with this person. I am personally with this person. What does that mean? He will cause the heathen, as we heard the promise, and kings, rulers, to make way for us. For us, They'll step aside and they will move things. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Some of us have experienced that very clearly this month. God has moved people in the higher-ups to make room for us and to get us what we need. Unusual. But supernaturally orchestrated by God. I've experienced that very recently, just two days ago. Then I needed something to be done, DMV, very serious thing. You're supposed to go through a lot of red tape, as they say, all the way up to the state capital. And uh, God just resolved it within literally two minutes. We saw the hand of God. We had prayed that morning, Lord, do this. Move as you promised. Move the people, Lord, because we can't do anything. God did it. How many of you can testify how God moved on your behalf? God's favor will go with us. That's number one. Number two, the fear of God, as he told the Israelites on different occasions, will be a causal factor to cause others to fear us. Sometimes they'll show it, it'll be visible, other times it'll be inside, but they'll have a fear. God has designed it that way, because God's presence is with us. The demons that are so bold and impudent, and claim to be fearless, they fear God, and they fear true men and women of God. And we will get the job done, because our God's presence goes with us. His favor goes with us. His fear is before us. Because his glory has been transferred to us due to us pressing in, saying, my God, like Moses, I want more, Lord. You've done great things, but I've got to see your glory more. I want you more. I want you more. I want you more, Lord. And God will surely do it. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. So much you have packed into Exodus 34. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to come together early, Lord, to hear your word, Lord, and to learn of you, Lord. Oh, God, to know exactly what holiness means. What you have told the children of Israel, what you're telling us. How, Lord, we can apply all of Scripture because all of Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Not only for rebuke and correction, 
but also, Lord, for doctrine and training in righteousness. Oh, we need training. The only place we're going to get it is in your word. By the Spirit of God, thank you, Father. Bless every brother, every sister. Give us a successful day, Lord, as you define success today. Doing your will. We thank you and praise you, Lord. Minister of healing, O oh Father, I pray for those who are suffering amongst your people, Father. Lord, pour your spirit upon them, Lord. Give the breakthroughs they need, my Father. Lord, as I thought yesterday with a shoulder that feels dislocated at times, seems out of nowhere for a time now, but manageable. I was thinking, how long will this, is this going to go on? And I thought to myself, Every time there's a problem, God always solves it. Hallelujah. This too shall pass. Glory be to God. Thank you, Lord, that your people have that heritage. Our God is with us, and he will take care of everything. We'll make it safely to the other shore to be with us. Because he'll go with us to take us to the destination. We thank you and praise you, Father. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.